Father, you fashioned your highest of creation, mankind, out of the dirt and then breathed into us a soul so that we might be like you. So, Father, as your image bearers on this earth, we have quite a calling. We have been called to, um, to fill the earth, to manage its resources. But most of all, most importantly, aside from all the other commands you've given us, the most important thing, the most great calling that you have called us to is what we're doing right now worshiping you. Lord, I pray that everyone under the sound of my voice this morning would indeed be worshipers of Jesus. That they would not just come here and go through some sort of activity of worship or some motions of worship, but that they would genuinely have a heart focused on you because you've redeemed them. You've made them alive in Christ. Father, for someone who might be here today who does not know you as their God, who has not put their faith and hope in Jesus Christ for the remission, for the removal of their sin and for the uh, addition of righteousness on, uh, on their behalf, Lord, I pray that today they would understand their sin, turn to you, and believe. What a wonderful way to enter the Christmas season, but as a new child of the Lamb of God. Lord, I pray that today you would uh, work in us and through us as we look at your word, that your word would become alive in our hearts and minds, that it would not be just an intellectual exercise, but that you would change us and grow us as our theme in the book of Philippians has been that we might have the mind of Christ help us to think and act like our Savior who died for us. So Father, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit this morning, that you would uh, help us as we examine the word of God and we examine our own hearts, help us to see where we might be deficient, where we might be sinning, where we might be failing. Help us to turn to you. We thank you for the way that you will work in us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our series is The Mind of Christ. And in order to have the mind of Christ, we must constantly be growing closer to him. We must be growing in our hearts, in our attitudes, in our understanding of who he is and what he wants for us. God's intent for each one of us is to grow, to change with with every encounter that we have with the word of God, whether it be some passage that you read in your devotions at breakfast time or whether it was in the Sunday school or ABF hour, whatever, whatever your word intake is, God wants you to change every time. He wants you to grow every time you interact with the word of God. So if, if your approach to reading the Bible or to attending church is nonchalant, is, is casual, Uh, then you're violating God's desire for your life. You're violating his intent 
in your life. Reading the Bible simply to check it off of your to-do list misses the point. Attending church because you have family or friends here or because it's tradition to go to church is missing the point. Not only are you missing the point, you're missing out on the power of the Word of God to transform your life. Now, the, the power is not lost from the Word. The Word of God is power. But if we don't harness that power, it's ineffective for us. The Word, the spoken Word, the written Word, it is the Word that is the ordinary means by which God convicts a condemned person of their sin. It's the Word, the ordinary means by which God convinces a person that faith in Jesus is the one and only means of salvation. The Word is the ordinary means by which God calls a person to Himself and they are justified and they are glorified and they are held secure by the Father. It's the Word, right? say the word is the ordinary means but there's nothing that sounds ordinary about it now don't get me wrong the bible the word of god is extraordinary hebrews 4 12 for the word of god is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart i don't mean to say that the word is ordinary far from it the word of god is quite extraordinary but what i mean is the way the word works in us is through ordinary means the ordinary means of reading the bible the ordinary means of hearing someone else read the bible or hearing someone else explain the bible through teaching and preaching the means by which we come into contact with the powerful Word of God is actually quite ordinary. So when we, God's people, actively seek to connect with the supernatural Word of God by these ordinary means, we will do what Philippians is calling us to do. We will have the mind of Christ. We cannot have the mind of Christ. We cannot act like Jesus if we are not in the Word. Our theme passage for, uh, for our series is Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Would you say it along with me? If you have it memorized, then you don't need it on the screen. But I think it'll be there. There it is. <laughs> say it along with me. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, and taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross." Today we are looking at Philippians 3.11 primarily. Uh, we'll, can, we'll keep the context together 
beginning in verse 8. But we're going to be talking about the resurrection from the dead. Last week, I said something along the lines of, death is our greatest enemy. Is that not true? You realize our bodies were designed to live forever, don't you? They were. Our bodies were designed to live forever. One of the ways that unsaved people can console themselves regarding death is by the observed pattern that everyone dies. And because everyone dies, even those who don't know God can console themselves saying, well, this is the way of all mankind. This is just simply part of life. But the Bible paints a very different picture. The Bible paints death as brokenness, as something not out of the ordinary. Adam was created to live. He was not created to die, right? Using the biblical genealogies as a historical timeline, we learned that it was about 2,000 years from Adam, the first man in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. About 2,000 years from Adam to Abraham. About 2,000 years from Abraham to Jesus. And now 2,000 years to us. That's about 6,000 years ago. I wonder what Adam would look like had he lived. What would a 6,000-year-old man look like? Well, first of all, it's kind of a moot point because sin did happen and Adam did die. Uh, but honestly, he might not have looked a whole lot different than he did on day one. Because if there was no curse of sin, the effects of aging just wouldn't be there, would they? Can you imagine? See, we were designed to live. But because Adam did sin, and uh, to be honest, he really didn't waste much time, if any, to get to that point. Uh, we don't know how much time there was between his creation in Genesis 1 and 2 and then the fall in Genesis 3, but it probably wasn't very long at all that he and Eve were just in the garden. And yes, Eve was tempted, but Adam willingly took of the fruit and sinned. And God's promise was true. He said, if you take of this fruit of the garden that I have forbidden, you can eat of all the trees of the garden, but if you take of this one, you will surely die. And die they did. They experienced spiritual death immediately. They experienced that separation in relationship to the God that, that they'd been walking with face to face. They lost that immediately, but then they also lost their physical lives. So because death is a reality, because this, this world is cursed by sin, and we know all too well what death is, the resurrection becomes a doctrine that we can really embrace. And we should embrace. Not because it's hopeful, but because it's true. Anytime that we talk about that great day when Jesus will bring back to life all who believed in him, we find great hope. Why? Because we've lost so many people, right? We can't wait to be reunited with them when they are raised in Christ at that great day.
Let us be faithful to the teaching of God's word regarding the resurrection, however. What we find in the teaching of the resurrection is that the main point of our resurrection is not our ongoing eternal life, although that's true. And the point of the resurrection is not a reunion with all of our friends and family who have gone on before, although that is true. The point of the resurrection is that we will be with Jesus, the one who died for us. That is our big idea. Jesus is the point of our resurrection. So read along with me, if you would, our passage for this morning. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 8, we'll read through verse 11. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Father, we're, we easily get excited about the concept of the resurrection that you've promised to raise us from the dead. In fact, your word tells us that all will experience the resurrection. Believers resurrected to a new life to be with their God and Savior forever, but for unbelievers, a resurrection to punishment, a resurrection to condemnation, a resurrection that ends with an eternal body that never dies being cast into a lake of fire. For those of us who believe, we find great hope in the resurrection. Help us to have a biblical hope this morning. Help us to allow the passion that Paul exudes in these verses to permeate us as well, that we would be passionate about living forever with our Savior. So Father, guide my words. Help us to hear from you through your word that we might grow this morning. In your son's name I pray, amen. Jesus is the point of our resurrection. And yet in verse 11, he comes across a little bit confusing, doesn't he? He says that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What does Paul mean by that? Any means possible? Does that mean there's more than one way? No, it does not mean that. So what Paul does not mean in verses 10 and 11, he does not, first of all, doubt his salvation. In the uh, Christian Standard Bible or the New International Version, if you have those in front of you, uh, he, he says it something like this, that I might somehow be resurrected. Or as I read in the ESV, by any means possible. That, that might just come across as a bit of uncertainty of uh, that maybe he's even saved. 
Believer in Christ, can you know that you have your sins forgiven and that you are redeemed and on your way to heaven? Can you know? Thank you. <laughs> yes, absolutely we can know. In fact, 1 John 5.13 tells us that we can know that we have eternal life. Not just because, oh, oh it's nice to know. Uh, he's actually making a broader case through the whole book uh, demonstrating how we can know. We can know because we're the people who recognize sins in our lives and we continue to confess them. We know that we are saved because we, uh, we have our faith and hope in Jesus Christ. We know that we're, we're saved because we continue to grow in our good works. Uh, I'm not going to preach all of 1 John to you right now, but, but read through it if you have doubts. That's the whole point he's making in that book is that we can know and here's how. Paul did not doubt his salvation doubt is often caused by a lack of knowledge because we just don't understand what the word of god says about the security of the believer uh, or doubt can be caused by uh, by a lack of obedience as we live our lives we uh, we're going around disobeying god left and right and so we have to kind of wonder huh am i really a child of god that happens this is not what's going on in paul's life Okay, Paul does not doubt his salvation. Secondly, Paul is not unsure of what means or what methods are required for his salvation, for him to be resurrected. He says, verse 11, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. That is not because he doesn't know, that he doesn't know that God is going to do that. The gospel is clear. That those who are in Christ have life. And that though our physical body may die, we shall live again. Remember John chapter 11? Lazarus is Jesus' close friend. And Lazarus dies. Jesus goes and meets his sisters near the tomb. And they go over to the tomb. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. And what happens? The one who had been dead for four days, so long that, as his sister so kindly put it, that he stinketh. He had been dead for four days, and yet he was brought back to life. Paul is not unsure of what is required for the resurrection. He knows that it's the gospel. To understand that you're a sinner. Paul understood he was a sinner. We rehearsed that a bit last week, going to the book of Acts and his, um, and his actions prior to salvation. He understood quite thoroughly that he was a sinner and that he needed a savior. The requirement for the resurrection is to be made right with God. If we're going to be raised to eternal life, we must be right with God before death. We looked at the means in depth two, three weeks ago when we looked at verse 9. Read it along with me. Philippians 3, 9. And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own. That comes from obeying the law. But having a righteousness that comes from Jesus by faith. He knew what it took to be part of the resurrection. 
He wasn't questioning that. We are forgiven from our sins by faith in Jesus Christ. We are made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. By faith, believing. Believing in Jesus for who he is, for what he has done, dying in our place, living a holy life in our place, dying that atoning death that we needed. So does this mean we believe and are done, just coast along until we see Jesus? No. And you know that that's not the case. That's not what Paul is saying. Romans 6, 1 and 2, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Absolutely no. In fact, uh, Paul is getting as close to cursing as one can in being adamant that no, we do not continue to sin so we might receive more forgiveness no we believe and when we believe we are transformed so that we live a righteous life which by the way takes a lot of work it's not easy to live a godly life is it now as we develop habits over time uh, some aspects of it of living a godly life do become more easy that's okay easier i apologize for my poor grammar The fact of the matter is, Paul knows that there is only one way to attain the resurrection to which he is looking for. And it doesn't come by more good works. It doesn't come by obeying uh, the law. It comes by faith in Christ alone. Okay, we know that he knows that. So he's not saying something contrary to those things. So what does Paul actually mean? Well, let's, let's keep his his train of thought, his line of reasoning in mind. So, so back up to verse 8. It says, I count everything as lost. What does he count as lost? All these, uh, these attributes, these things that were in his past that were good things, uh, those, uh, they don't matter. What matters is Christ. I count everything as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. I count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. So you see the priority that he places on Jesus in this passage. Verse 9, be found in him, not having a righteous, righteousness of my own, just expanded on that. Verse 10, that I may know him. Jesus is Paul's highest passion. that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul's fixation in, in, in leading up to his own resurrection in verse 11, his fixation on his own resurrection has everything to do with being with Jesus. No mention of walking the streets of gold. Excuse me. No mention of the beauty of the city of God. There are other passages that talk about that. I'm not denying that heaven will, that the new Jerusalem will not be beautiful. It will be gorgeous. But if you're going to boil it down to what's most significant about heaven, it's not the architecture, it's not 
the, uh, the streets of gold. It's not even the people that are there. What makes heaven heaven is Jesus. His fixation on his own resurrection has everything to do with being with Jesus. Yes, he wants eternal life for the sake of living forever. God wires us that way, doesn't he? And I'm absolutely sure that he wants to be reunited with friends and family who have died in Christ. Believers that have gone on before. I'm certain that he wants to be reunited with them, as you and I also do. Yet he makes no mention of these desires because his desire for Jesus outshines them all. How did he get to that point? How could his desires be so sharply focused on Jesus that the, the other benefits that we associate with eternal life don't come through in his writing at all? Well, he's trained his desires, and we can train our desires as well. In fact, we do train our desires. The question isn't, do we train our desires? The question is, uh, what direction are we training our desires? The things that we think about most create habits of desire within us. So where does your mind wander when you have idle time? Where do your thoughts go when you're not otherwise engaged? I've had people come to me for some biblical counsel who were concerned that maybe they were not saved. They had grown up in church. I'm thinking of one individual specifically. He'd grown up in church, uh, knew the gospel, had, uh, had responded in faith to the gospel, showed evidence of growth over time, but then over more time showed less evidence of growth and he was concerned that maybe he hadn't been saved to begin with. The reason he gave for these thoughts was I just don't have a desire to stop sinning. Do you find yourself in that position where you have certain sins that you just kind of enjoy and you have no desire to get rid of them? said, I have no desire to stop this sin in my life and I have no desire for Jesus. He was right to be concerned. He was right to be concerned that maybe he wasn't saved to begin with. His problem was his, his, own, his only real connection to God was when he would come to church. So he'd come to church and, and, and have some Bible connection there for an hour or two but then spend the rest of his week ignoring God and his word. And depending on your schedule, that's around 100 hours. And by schedule, I mean you got to sleep in there too. But we all have 168 hours a week to use. And so some of that we have to sleep. We've got to take care of ourselves. Some of that we're working and, and many of our jobs focus our attention on, on whatever it is we're doing. But what about when we have the capacity to choose what we're thinking about? Where does your mind go? If the 
only time that our heart is pointed toward God is for an hour or two at church and we spend the rest of our waking hours longing for the things of the world, longing for status, for relationships, longing for possessions. We spend all of our time training our desires in worldly pursuits. Then, of course, when we think about eternity, we're only going to think about the physical blessings of it. But if we rather spend more of our energy focusing our heart toward God, we will train our desires rightly. Paul's desire is unwaveringly fixed on Jesus and so should ours. Jesus is the point of our resurrection. The physical resurrection of the physical body, our actual body, of each believer who has died, whether that believer had died moments before the resurrection or centuries before, right? The physical resurrection of the body of the believer who has died will be when God makes his or her spiritual reality a physical one. Did you follow that? When a believer's dead body comes to life, that physical body will be mirroring what had already happened to him or her spiritually. I'm getting some scowls. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul, the same writer, is using terms that we will understand to help us understand what God does to us when we first believe. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's talking about Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. In other words, we were by nature those who deserved God's fullest anger directed at us, like the rest of mankind. That is a very depressing verses 1 through 3, isn't it? We all, all mankind, was spiritually dead. What is it that dead things can do? That's right, nothing. I know I ask that silly question every once in a while, but it bears repeating. Dead things don't do anything. Our natural state is that of spiritual death. Verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, that is resurrection terminology. If you have placed your faith and hope in Jesus Christ, you have spiritually already been resurrected. You have gone from death, spiritual death, 
into spiritual life. And what Paul is saying in Philippians is that one day, God will make that a physical reality for all believers as well. What he did to us spiritually, taking us from death unto life, he will do with our physical bodies. And praise the Lord for that. The moment that you put your faith and hope in Jesus Christ, that you stop striving to be good enough yourself because that just doesn't work. The moment that you recognize that the only way of salvation is Jesus Christ himself and you surrender to him saying, I'm yours. Believing the promises of God God then says, live. He makes your dead spirit alive. Only then will that physical resurrection be a resurrection to life for eternity. In Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, Paul again talks about the resurrection, our union to Jesus Christ in his resurrection, just as he was raised, so we too will be raised. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. In this passage, in Romans chapter 6, Paul is making the point that as believers, we are to as we have been brought to spiritual life, we are to die to our sinful self. We are to d- die to those sinful desires that put our focus only on these earthly things. And if we have indeed died to sin because of our life in Christ, our physical bodies will be raised with him as he was raised from the dead. There are plenty of other passages we could turn to about the resurrection. It's an easy word search if you want to go look up some of those passages later. Our point this morning is that as we see from Paul's example and his encouragement to us, his command to us, is that Jesus would be the driving motivation of our life. If Jesus is not your driving motivation, is not your highest goal, your highest aspiration, then you fit in one of two categories. Either you are not in Christ because you are still that natural man, that that dead spiritual person, or your driving motivation in life is not Jesus because your affections, your desires are weak or broken. And that's quite, quite possible. 
So I ask you, how are you training yourself to look toward eternity? What are you doing in your life throughout every week to train your thoughts toward eternity with Jesus Christ? Or is that something you just leave for Sunday morning? How are you immersing yourself in this relationship with Jesus? Is he your closest friend? Is your relationship with Jesus the closest relationship you have to anyone? He should be. And that's saying a lot because your relationship to your spouse or to your children or or, or other family members ought to be very close, shouldn't it? but your relationship to the one who saves should be more. I know, I know, you can see all those other people. You can't see Jesus, so that makes it harder, doesn't it? Well, maybe, but maybe not. You know, when you're unable to see some of your close loved ones for a long time, maybe uh, you've got a relative that's uh, been deployed overseas and, and your only correspondence is the occasional phone call or video chat or do they do physical letters your communication is very limited because you can't be with them face to face does that cause you to increase your desire to be with that person or does it cause you to decrease your desire to be with them of course it causes you to want to be with them more because you can't because you're separated that's our relationship with jesus right now we can't see him face to face Yet that ought to actually increase our desire to finally be in his presence. In the Christmas season, we remember his birth. Now, whether or not he was born in December is really irrelevant. Uh, The point is, he came. And so we remember that he came to earth to be the Messiah, and it's good for us to celebrate the coming of the Messiah. The, Lord, the Lord's faithful. Those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ uh, ought to be looking expectantly to the Messiah coming back. We ought to be looking expectantly to the time when we'll see our Savior face to face, whether it's because he's, he comes back for us or because we've died and, and gone into his presence. God has promised believers in Jesus that they will have eternity in a resurrected, literal, physical body, one that doesn't hurt or grow old or fade in any way. And the point isn't that we live forever. The point is that we live with him forever. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would sharpen our desires that you would strengthen our resolve to focus our lives on you we owe you literally everything and yet there's there's actually nothing that we can do that's going to um, increase your love for us you already loved us so much that you sent jesus to die for us And yet, sometimes our affections for you are so weak. Please forgive us. Help us as a result of 
the word of God and your spirit indwelling us. Help us to grow in our desire to see our Savior face to face, to spend eternity with him. Father, thank you for how you work in us and through us, through the preaching and teaching of your word. Lord, I pray that we would grow as a result of your work in us today to be more like our Savior in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Thank you.